Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 57 of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Terry, and today I've got a super cool episode where we're going to talk about crowdfunding on Kickstarter with Ryan Beltran from Original Grain. So before we get into it, we also have a new five-star iTunes review, and it's from Escape Corporate Life. I've always been interested in product sourcing, drop shipping, and distribution, but I didn't know where to start. After listening to Terry's podcast over the last couple of months, I've learned a great deal from experienced insiders who share their honest stories on successes and failures, as well as actionable tips on how to get started with your own business. Thanks, Terry, for providing such incredible resources. I look forward to each new episode every week. Cheers. Awesome. And one more thing before I get into this week's episode, I'll be hopping over to China this week to visit my supplier for the Baller Leather Travel Wallets. It's just hard getting some samples made over email, uh, trying to build this into a bigger store when things like, uh, you know, buttons, different designs, uh, different colors, just over email. It's just much easier if you're there for five minutes and you can just nail this out uh, in person. So I'll be flying over for the week to get this hammered out in a day. And I'll write up a post definitely about uh, kind of what, what I go through and what it's like to visit a supplier for the first time and some other experiences uh, kind of being in China. So with that being said, let's just get into this week's episode. So Ryan, uh, who are you and what do you do? So yeah, thank you, Terry. Thank you for having me on on the show. I'm really happy to be here. I started uh, Original Grain Watches here back in in March and I I moved to China, I guess, uh, two years previous to that. As soon as I graduated from the University of Oregon, um, I did some sourcing and some manufacturing out there in Guangzhou um, uh, the year prior. And then as soon as uh, I kind of saw and honed in that ability, I decided to launch my own brand and utilize the skills that I had developed. And uh, this spring, I launched Original Grain. So, you know, you're out of college, you moved to China. Like, that sounds crazy. How did you come up with that? Uh, yeah, I get that a lot. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people start in their nine to fives, I guess, and then kind of realize that maybe they, they want to go the entrepreneurship route. I didn't do that. I, I literally moved to Guangzhou less than two months after graduation. Really, it was just something within me that told me, why not give it a shot? Why not, you know, see what see what's out there? And i I knew a couple of guys um, that had been based in Guangzhou for a year prior, and I talked to them, and it was one full call later, I was on a plane, I felt like, so. So you just talked... You just talked to them on the phone and that was it. You didn't do any like research or... Didn't take a whole lot of convincing for me. Uh, (laughs) It was was a pretty quick decision. Yeah, they, they, maybe they're... They're good, uh, you know, at, at convincing people. But yes. Yeah, so, so one thing before, before we get off track, I think a lot of young people want to do this kind of just, you know, leave the country on a whim thing. But you know, so how much money did you have in the bank before you did this? Like, just kind of to have an idea, because you're right out of college, and you know, did you have any debt or? Yeah, I had, I had a few. I, I think I had a few thousand. That's it. Not much. I knew it was enough to, you know, obviously I, I did a little research. I won't lie. You know, I knew that cost of living was low. Um, I knew that if I, you know, could secure maybe, secure maybe a couple small clients prior to going on, a couple family friends that needed products made in China, that that I'd be okay. And as long as I could rely on the savings for the first few months, 
um, I'd have to find a way some way or another. And, and I just kind of knew that, that I'd be all right. Yeah. And it's kind of like the burn the boats thing, right? Where you just kind of put yourself in this thing and Absolutely. go all out. So, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. And so, you know, when you were on the ground in China, what did you do there? Were you doing like quality control for people or kind of, can you tell us a little bit, bit about that? Yeah. Initially. Yeah. I, I was doing actually really everything A to Z. Um, you know, there were uh, a few simple, simple things, some sandals, some apparel. So very, very simple things that people had already had manufactured or were looking to uh, get established with their supplier in mainland China or overseas. And so it was kind of a trial run for some of the people. They just wanted some low quantities. And, and it was really, yeah, like I said, A to Z, taking a product and just kind of having it manufactured in China, doing the quality control, uh, logistics was pretty simple. That's something that I've learned a lot more about in my more recent venture. Um, But yeah, some of these people had already established those things. So it's pretty, pretty simple. Nice. So how do you do quality control when you don't really speak Mandarin? Because I guess you're not a native speaker, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm not. I struggle. I get by, but I'm not, I'm not fluent yet. Now, currently in my most, in my more recent venture, I I have full-time, two full-time assistants. Well, one full-time, another one part-time and uh you know they they basically completely get rid of that language gap or that barrier uh prior to that it was a lot more difficult i'll tell you that i guess i had built a network of friends who'd been there for i don't know some of them four or five years and so i'd actually pay them you know and to use their employees for a day <laughs> and I'd, I'd snag them for a day and ended up using them nice nice and so you know you're doing kind of quality control in the manufacturing side when did you realize uh when did you get the original grain idea? You know, it was, like I said, it was something that I wanted it, I wanted to do. As soon as I started making products for someone else, there was something inside me that said, as much as I love working for myself in a way and dictating my own schedule and being an entrepreneur and all that, at some to some extent, I was still providing a service for someone else. And for anyone who's ever sourced a product uh, for, for someone else, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of... For the people who are having you provide that service, they don't, well, why can't I tweak this? Well, why can't I have it quicker? Well, why isn't the quality of this at the low price point? You know, and I, as soon as I really started experiencing that, I, I realized that why not uh, develop a product that I would like, that I could wear? And then that's a whole other story. You know, I, I liked watches and I'd seen wood watches and I wanted to make a better one. And uh, that's kind of how the watch thing came to be. And I think it's one thing when you never source anything, you, you have this kind of, I guess you don't really know how products are made. You just kind of buy them and then they get made themselves. When you actually right. look into it, you're right. like, whoa, this is crazy. A lot more to it. Yeah, a lot more to it. You know, the, the biggest, two biggest complaints are, uh, you know, cost, price. They always want a, the, the highest quality product, product for the lowest possible cost. And I'm going, well, at some point, there's going to have to be a, you know, happy medium there. And it's, they think that since it's made in China, it's going to be worth nothing. And I, I'm making it almost a personal goal of mine to debunk this low quality China thing. So uh, if you take the time, you can have very high quality products made in China. Absolutely. Yeah, like I think there's a misconception where everything should cost, you know, $2, but then I can sell it for like 100 right? And, right. <laughs> and right. it should be the best thing on the street. <laughs> right. And you're just like, well, you get what you pay for still. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. And so you had the idea for original grain. You know, how did you come up with the first prototype or like with the first design on what it was going to look like? If you, if you know watches, which I mean, not everyone does. If you look at the design of them, they're all fairly similar. Um, so it was really just finding, like I said, a way to incorporate wood, which had become very popular in America, very trendy 
Uh, I'm from the Northwest uh, in the United States. For anyone who kn- knows where that's at, it's very uh, forested, kind of an outdoorsy place. So I was kind of naturally drawn to wooden watches. And then I-, I wanted to basically add in stainless steel. And so I-, I basically looked at watches. I'd been a huge fan for my whole life. And I knew that as I could just basically um, basically inlay it there in the links. And uh, so I worked with the factory. I worked with the designer. I did a little uh, design work myself with the help of uh, with the help of our supplier and another third party designer, and really just came up with the the design that way. Mm-hmm. And so, when you say design work, is that in like three D CAD or like just writing on a piece of paper? Or? Well, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> first design, <laughs> my brother and I. My brother's my my business partner on this, and uh, our first designs are hilarious. They're literally we drew them with crayons. You know, people say that, but it's, we really did that, and. Uh, we did. We took them eventually, like anything, took them from that stage, you know, made them a little better into like an AI, and then eventually yeah, into a CAD drawing. Exactly. And so, you know, you got the first um, kind of design. You know, how did you shop around for suppliers? Did you already have an idea of who you're going to work with based on your previous experience? You know, I didn't have I didn't have a lot of experience with watch manufacturers, so it was it was a little bit starting from scratch with that. Um, like I said, that my network became fairly extensive when it came to sourcing products and people who had sourced virtually everything, um, you know, from sandals to human hair. One of our friends does human hair. It's pretty bizarre. But, it, but anyway, uh, so I, I utilized that network to start with. Um, and it's always a process like that. It's, it's kind of following the, the, you know, the trail, the cookie trail. And you, you go from one supplier to the next one and to the next one until you really find one who can really specialize in that. So that was one way. But I also utilized the fairs um, and trade shows in China. For all of you that know the Canton Fair there is in Guangzhou. It's the world's largest trade show. So I actually found my very first supplier there. Do you find it better to ask people who they know and follow that trail or just to go blanket on Alibaba and just find... Uh, suppliers there like, is there a better approach that you would advise if you know someone use use that if you do uh, but i will say alibaba or you know if you can get down and dirty and make a trip over there you'll be able to you you'll 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 sniff it out you will um but i would say if you do have a, a network base there uh, try and utilize that first gotcha. all right and so you know you found your supplier uh, what did the first kind of mvp look like or the first prototype uh well first of all they were they were much smaller. They were uh, made of different metal. Um, there was actually, you actually used a, like a zinc alloy. Um, these are stainless steel now. They were, they were pretty different. It's funny, we look at those and we kind of laugh now or chuckle at, at just the overall design and quality. The concept was there and that was what was most important, you know, with the MVP. And, and so I understand the OG watches are hybrid stainless steel and wood, right? Like the links in the middle, they're wood, but then the overall kind of structure is stainless steel, right? Right. So it maintains that classic, you know, timepiece feel. And re- yeah, I, I like to say real watch feel. You know, if you've ever held a wood watch, they're very, very light and they almost... They almost don't feel like you're wearing anything, which it can be. I think the wood watches market themselves that way. But I'm a being a watch guy. I really I like having some feeling that on my wrist, you know. Yeah, because there's this weight thing that has to go with it that kind of makes it a watch, right? Otherwise, right, absolutely. Otherwise, it's like you're wearing like one of those you know eight dollar plastic Casio watches. You know, not not no offense if anyone is wearing that listening, but right, right, yeah, no, <laughs> like you got it out of the claw machine or something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> All right. And so uh, you got, how many uh, prototypes did you go with before you went to Kickstarter? Five or six prototypes. Granted, a few of those were actually just TAD, 
we we had about three made prior, actual physical prototypes made. But we went through about five or six designs, if not a few more, um, prior to actually having the, the product that we launched and are actually working with today. Actually, we've even made changes, very slight changes since Kickstarter um, to improve the watch. So. And, and how long was this across in terms of time? Like, Is it like half a year, a year? Or? About half a year, about half a year, give or take. Uh, I, granted, I did, go, I did go back home, which was part of actually our experimentation prior to launching on Kickstarter last summer. And, and that, that was factored into that time. So I'd say about six months. I see. So you basically like probably once a month, you guys would change it or they would take time. It would take them like a week and a half to make it probably or? It depends. See, if you, if you start getting real complicated with, with watches or really any product that requires a mold, you could be looking at close to 20 to 30 days just on the mold. So some of them took longer than a month actually. I see. And so and I also know that watches have different parts and right? different products have different components. So you know, do you have to find each supplier on your own, like for example, like the quartz, or do they have like a network where they can source this from also? I'm really glad, really glad you asked that. When sourcing a product, I would say that it can be attractive to do what maybe like an Apple or someone that, who creates like an iPhone does and, and go and get parts from all these different factories and make it real complicated, no one can copy you and make it almost overcomplicated. And I would say don't do that. Just rely on what the factory does, their professionals, um, and utilize their networks. Because that's one thing I almost did is I tried to source the, net, the movements. Uh, we went with the Japanese courts. And I, I thought about almost flying into Japan and, wait a minute here. You know, I talked to some watch guys in the industry and they're like, no, just, they're all, you're all right. They'll get you some genuine stuff. Because I made this mistake too a couple weeks ago. I was like, yeah, I want to add these bands to my wallet. And then my supplier was like, hey, I can make these. You know, don't, don't waste your time getting samples. And I was like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe they can just ask who they know. And right. It might make more sense. Yeah, right, right. So, but I guess there's also one thing where like the Japanese quartz kind of you would think has a better quality too, right? So how did you convince yourself that, you know, that would be all right to just go with your suppliers? Uh, kind of components over going like directly to the source yeah yeah well i knew this is a, a pretty well-known supplier th that we're using they they manufacture quite a few of the different wood watches on the market as well as you know watches for some pretty big name basically i just relied on them i also took the movements out and took it to um a watch expert in based there actually and he just went yeah these are these are good and i basically that's really how i verified it gotcha so you kind of through third party and they're just their market right right experience, I mean, I yeah at some, at some level you got to have um, a certain level of trust but but like i said they're they're not gonna they're not gonna end up trying to mess you over on those nice nice and when you were looking for the supplier were they pretty open with uh giving other client references to just see you know People are happy with them? Or? Yeah, they were. They were. I mean, they, they have a real nice showroom, so it's pretty easy to, to know who they represent. Actually, I would say that's a good tactic to use is, you know, if I would say as far as who are kind of withholding those type of that type of information, maybe be a little more weary of. But yeah, kind of like a red flag if you're looking for supplies, if they don't, you know, tell you who they're working with. Or I guess if they can't even provide references or be proud of what they're doing. Absolutely. Kind of very weird too. Yeah. Awesome. All right. And so let's move on to a little bit about Kickstarter. So how did you guys decide to kind of go crowdfunding for this? Right. Project? I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of crowdfunding. Even before doing it, I'd kind of fallen in love with the with Kickstarter, but crowdfunding in general, it's such a just a fantastic platform and concept. You know, for us, it was just as simple as like this whole, you know, what's the minimum viable product what's the most the minimum viable way to see if this is going to be attractive in the watch market and so 
Uh, Kickstarter presented itself. I like to call Kickstarter or crowdfunding in general kind of like the the men's home shopping network where kind of guys go to look for for cool unique products and so I knew that if we could sell on there that we could sell in the market and granted we got a lot of great feedbacks from Kickstarter so that's kind of what drove us there initially. Awesome so let's go into a little bit about that because I know your initial goal on Kickstarter was 10k and I see right now you guys are I got 390,000 so you know before we get into that uh, how did you guys come up with 10k just based on like your logistics and everything? Right well you know our, our minimum order quantities were were fairly low because I had been working with that supplier for a while um, and I knew that if we had raised that we, we could we could reach that level and basically have product to sell. And if we had product to sell, um, kind of we would have been super bootstrapped. However, I knew that we could at least have something in our hands that we could deliver to people and hopefully start a brand. Um, so that, that was really where the 10000 Did I think that we could do much more, like 20 or 30? Yes. But I knew that 10 would at least get us to where I wanted to start. I see. So t- the 10 k would have given you the extra orders to really kind of push you to a different level, right? Then to bootstrap everything with their own cash. Right. Because right. yeah. I think also you get kind of the marketing angle too, where you have people that are talking about it and backers who you know, expect their product, maybe they'll tell their friends. Whereas if you kind of did everything on your own and then you have to do marketing afterwards, it seems like a different path to go down. With the, with the Kickstarter route? Yeah. It's definitely such a fantastic way to just generate exposure, I'd say. You know, our tactics for, for doing that were definitely utilizing our own networks, um, we had been kind of playing with the idea for a couple, for about a month or two months prior to Kickstarter. So there was a little buzz prior, and then you know we were able to get, get quite a few of our friends and family and extended networks on board. And that there's a whole strategy I'd say around how to do a successful Kickstarter. My kind of real rule of thumb is to try and get 30% of your goal within the first three days. And almost was like a little Kickstarter nerd there for a while, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess it paid off. Yeah, because I think there's something seeing a goal, a project that's like 50% done versus one that's like 10%. I think, and you want to like, you want to support them so they finish it. And I guess that's probably what the 30% you're talking about. Yeah, you kind of create this uh, sense of urgency amongst the community and it really definitely plays a part. Nice, nice. Okay, and so let's go into a little bit about the tiers you guys came up with, because I know this is kind of like a struggle for a lot of people trying to get into it. So uh, I see you guys have one, two, three, I think five tiers, is that correct? Yes. Or, or no, actually, no, there's more now. There's like, oh, there's a lot more, actually. <laughs> there's like a $1,000 one, too. I didn't realize that. Right. With, with just the watches, yeah, we've got um, f- about six um, or seven watch ones. That, you know, there's a whole, you know, Kickstarter actually does a really good job of trying to educate you prior to launching. And they, they recommend and suggest that you um, have some lower level ones. They've got whole percentages of ones that succeed and don't succeed if you offer 5 and $10 rewards. Granted, from my research, I don't see that people make a whole lot of money off those low-level T-shirts or whatever, you know, kind of trying to upsell. But in my opinion, the tier, when you tier your project, what you need to do is just keep it simple. Don't get overcomplicated. We're even a little complicated in the fact that we offered uh, three styles to start and actually six styles by the time we're finished. And what you do when you, when you get too carried away with the styles is you put yourself in a tough spot when it comes to manufacturing and delivering a product that you've never done before. Granted, I was able to kind of get around that based on the experience that I had, but I definitely wouldn't recommend getting too carried away with that. So I see the first level where you actually get the watch is at $89, right? And everything else kind of is like a t-shirt or a decal or something just like a small thing, but 
like a souvenir type, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, we you know we sold a few T-shirts here and there, but um, obviously our bread and butter was just selling watches. And I think that that's what people are going there to buy anyway. So, but you know, with the tiers, you know, one way to do it, and I think this is like, people have caught on to this, is just doing early bird specials. You know, the first hundred people got a watch for eighty nine, the next two hundred got one for ninety nine, and so on and so forth. Oh, so you keep kind of increasing the price every 10 days or something or well as soon as you sold out of the first hundred no one could get 89 dollars. so what that does is the first hundred people are going well i need to get it now otherwise i'm gonna have to spend 99 once those hundred are gone oh okay and if 99 goes out you can go 190 you can kind of keep going up until going up keep going up yep i see i see that's interesting because then you kind of maximize the amount you're getting with a sense of urgency too right but the one thing and then of course you're you're highlighting what your retail price will be um, post Kickstarter, and then they're going. Well, I'm getting. Not only am I getting a deal if I'm an early birder, but I'm also getting a deal based on their retail price, and that can really convince someone. And do you need to disclose your retail price on Kickstarter? You don't have to. No, I don't think they may have changed the rules since I did. When I did, you didn't. Uh, but but I think it's a great great to disclose that. I mean, you're you're going. Hey, you're getting this at a hell of a deal. So. You know, come on, come on down. <laughs> I, I see. And it, it's interesting. I noticed that even like the lower tiers, like I guess like the $5 one, you only have like 14 backers compared to like, say, you know, the $100 one, you have like 300. So so it's kind of interesting how even the low tier, lower tiered ones, I, I guess the idea is that people really want the product. Absolutely. They're not looking for, I mean, once you have a brand, maybe they want a decal or a t-shirt. But prior to that, they're just, they're obviously looking for the product that you're you're promoting. Nice. So I guess it's a good method to test different price points too, right? Like if one level completely sells out, you can move on to the next one and kind of tweaks your retail price. Right. Kickstarter is just, I, I'm such a fan of it for so many reasons. Obviously, you're you're generating capital without giving away any equity, um, but you're also doing a ton of research into the market and seeing you know who your demographic is, but also price points, like you just said. Yeah, and, and if it doesn't work, you know you probably need a new idea too. So right, right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All right, and so you also have something called stretch goals. So what what are those? Uh, what are those things? Essentially, a stretch goal is as soon as you reach your initial funding goal. You know, ours was ten thousand, um, and you surpass that, you can go ahead. And a lot of it's dependent upon the rate at which you exceed that initial funding goal. So say you're coming up on, you have a 30 day campaign and your goal is 20,000 and you're at 19,000 on day 28, you're probably not going to have any stretch goals, but say you hit your goal with 25 days and you hit it right away. Like we did. Well, what that does is it allows people to have something else to look forward to. Now you've reached your goal. You're guaranteed there. You're guaranteed to deliver the product or you're more or less guaranteed to deliver the product. And now they have something else that they can look forward to. So for us, what we did is we we incorporated a higher uh, material. So we incorporated sapphire crystal glass once we hit fifty thousand. So now people are going, well, what? they're telling their friends, they're telling them, if we can get this, you know, this campaign up to fifty thousand, fifty five thousand, they're going to give us sapphire crystal. So everyone's watch gets upgraded, or just a select few after you hit ten k. We provided it as an option, as a st- the stretch goal is an option. Either you can do it that way and provide everyone with it, or you can charge, you know, five bucks like we did. We charged five dollars, which covered part of the cost. Oh, so people who already gave, say, a hundred dollars, could add an extra five if they wanted to. Right. And so you also have more than one stretch goal. You have like one, two, three, four, four, right? Wow. And that's all dependent upon the, you know, how your campaign goes. Like I said, if 
if you're just chugging along and you know barely going to reach your goal, then you may not have stretch goals. If you're flying all over the place, it's just a way to add, you know, build upon the momentum and keep people excited and you know sharing something to look forward to. I guess. And these goals need to be published on day one, or can you add them later on? That's the whole point. Is you, you know, it's a stretch goal, so you don't know until you hit launch and t- and then you you add them as the campaign goes. I see. I see. And so I see you have. Number two is a woman's watch design, uh, and then three is like a black on black, and then four is like a black case back. We did a commemorative case back, which, you know, at that point, we that was for maybe our, you know, our most uh, enthusiastic backers and people that really, really wanted to be a part of the community, which granted, we had quite a few people do, um, but that was something we did, you know, very, towards the end of the campaign. Mm-hmm. So which bracket did you have the most backers at? In the end, uh, we actually had the most by far uh, for the collection. So they wanted all three watches. So this was how much? Uh, is this the two fifty one or two hundred fifty? Yeah. Nice. Wow, I see seven hundred eighty people. Right. Nice. That's crazy. So, does this seven eighty include the people under it or? Nope. That's its its own own level. So there were seven hundred eighty people who specifically backed our OG collection um, pledge amount. Nice. So you guys are looking at a total of 1,500 customers, maybe close to 2,000 more like it? 2,200. 2,200. I got you, got you. I'm just adding up the math, looking at scrolling down here. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Nice. And so when you have these stretch goals, you know, have you worked out the manufacturing before you had this or did you say like, hey, let's hit the goal and then we figure it out? And that's why I I had a little uh, note of caution there a few minutes ago about not getting too carried away with, with these type of different styles or designs. Um, and stretch goals because it can be a lot to manage. You know, three watches alone is is quite a bit. The sapphire crystal was ready to go, uh, but the black on black was it was definitely difficult to manage because it was a completely new watch, never made before. So you're not only are you showing a rendering um, that people are buying into and expect to see an exact replica of that, which is difficult to do, um, but there are, you know you're also you've never made it before. So and for your delivery. The delivery timelines, you know, do these stretch goals need to be in the same timeline or can they be extended? No, they can be extended. Absolutely. Um, granted, we were able to deliver on the black on black, um, but the women's watches are, are were pushed back a little bit. Nice, nice. All right. So you guys, you know, are in the process of making like 2000 plus watches now. Initially started out, did you tell your supplier, hey, you know, what's your maximum capacity? Uh, kind of all this stuff or... You knew what we, they were capable of, and we knew that um, unless it went absolutely even, you know, it have to be three times what we did to even be an issue, that, that we'd be all right. And so we're, we actually are manufacturing about 6,000 units on this first order. Granted, our delivery time has been pushed back. Uh, the initial quoted time was about 45 or 50 days, and we're looking at closer to between 65 and 80. Nice. So, so I also understand Kickstarter, you have to use all the money you raise, otherwise it gets taxed as income, right? I've read this somewhere. I'm not sure if that's what you've seen too. Right. Well, I mean, because it's your money to spend um, as you see fit. Of course, your primary you know, concern or goal or objective should be to deliver what you promised. That's your number one goal. And then the rest of it, yeah, I mean, is used to start your business. So I guess the, the best use of it would to be, A, get the product to your backers, but also make as much as you can with the money, right? I guess. Right. I see. So, so it kind of right. funds your first inventory run to an extent, but also gets it to the hands of people. So. Yes. And yes. so post Kickstarter now, uh, I see you guys have moved to Shopify too, right? So right. Uh, is that still like a pre-order page or is it actually like full out? Can we buy this yet? 
can we buy this already? We are currently in our pre-order stage. Uh, we're actually going to start delivering watches next week, uh, which is super exciting because um, uh, that's going to be a whole new wave of momentum that will start when people actually see the watch, get to feel the watch, get to tell their friends about the watch, that whole thing. Um, but yeah, we are we are in a pre-order stage until those are delivered uh, next week. I see. So I want to go into this a little bit because I just sold like 20 wallets I made myself and just finding boxes and like making my own shipping labels, like I hated it. So how are you guys doing this with like 6,000? Uh, <laughs> I read a quote the other day and I've been telling everyone this because I utilized them. Glad I did. Don't confuse shipping one item with 1,000 items and the simplicity of shipping one, shipping one item with 1,000 items because... You're dealing with a whole new ballgame. And uh, we actually went ahead and uh, went directly to a fulfillment center and we're utilizing a 3PL right there. So just someone can handle that for us. Nice. Can you recommend who you're using? Or Yeah, we're using someone based out of Indiana. Um, it's, techno- it's called Technology Drive. They're a fulfillment center. You're, you know, Essentially, they all do the same thing. Uh, we picked one that was more centrally located for you know cost purposes. But So basically, these guys, you send your product to them and then... They package ship it for you, or right? So I mean, they're gonna get you a little better shipping rate, and uh, you know they're providing the the pick and pack for you. Uh, as long as everything's shipped to them in an orderly fashion, they're gonna pull it, pick it, pack it, ship it. You can pay for more comprehensive services such as returns and customer service and even marketing, but uh, the basic is just gonna be pick and pack and ship. Nice. And so, kind of, uh, are you looking at a per unit fee, or like how does the fees work out with these guys? It depends. Um, ours is a per package fee, regardless of one watch or six watches. You're gonna pay uh, the same fee per package, which is really nice, actually. That's nice because I know some people charge more based on your quantity. Based on quantity. If you're, if you're, yeah, exactly. Right. You know, for a unit, kind of like a watch. Do you have like a are you paying like five bucks for them to ship it or kind of just to have an idea of um, what to expect? Most people know this and uh, I haven't been extremely forward about it uh, because it's part of our branding and stuff. But we have a very nice uh, bamboo wooden box that we deliver everything in. It's, we love it, but it's not light by any means. So our shipping costs are a little higher. Um, they're between 6 and $11 depending on where they're going. For one watch. And so you pay the fulfillment center a fee plus the $6? The shipping fee, yep. I see. And I guess you guys are including it in the final retail price, right? Or Yeah, I mean, it's obviously factored into our margins and stuff like that. But we uh, on Shopify, we charge for shipping because, um, you know, it can, you know, it can be anywhere from... Like I said, it's probably closer to seven. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about shipping is that it doesn't scale like manufacturing where you do more. It gets cheaper shipping. is just flat kind of no matter where you go, right? Yeah. Right, right. And then, of course, with their fee and everything tacked on, it gets, yeah. It's yeah, exactly. Like, it's a big bill when you're sending, you know, like, you know, 6,000 watches and you're going to eat them all into your margins. It's a lot of a lot of money, so. With Kickstarter, we did free shipping. But I think Kickstarter, you're going to have to because people so, just donate yeah, that and that they expect the, the product, right? Where kind of, if you buy it online on a shopping, shopping cart, right. like you have this extra option. Absolutely, yeah. And so, you know, after Kickstarter, you know, how are you guys doing the marketing? We've been like? just kind of riding the wave, the, the initial rave, wave of Kickstarter and really utilizing our social media and getting all, kind of cultivating this community that's already started, getting them to share, getting them to shout us out, you know, consistently updating everyone because we have a decent following just from Kickstarter and just trying to give them, you know, little bits and pieces here and there, whether it's a photo product photo shoot or a little photo shoot with one of our models we did last week. Um, just continuously giving them, 
you know, pieces of behind the scenes footage, I guess. Yeah, because I think that's what people like seeing is the behind the scenes. It's kind of, it's kind of like in MTV Cribs when you know when we were young, you like watch TV, you're like oh, how this movie was made, or you know what this celebrity house right, looks like, right. and then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's that's basically how we've been doing it lately. Yeah, so oh, let's go into a bit about shooting product photos. So how does this process work out? Extremely difficult uh, for watches. <laughs> it was not uh, not not easy. You know, it's uh, the lighting is extremely important. I'd say I've shot, done a little bit of uh, product shoots for for different various products, and watches has been by far the most difficult. I would say you know if you've got the money to do it, you know you get what you pay for and go ahead and have someone do it for you. Yeah, because it's funny. I try to list my product on Amazon. They're like, yeah, no, you can't just do it with your iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, because what's funny is they have some restrictions on like clothing, cars, uh, luggage. Like like you need to have like a white background, a certain resolution. And it's not just like you post a book up where there's like a stock photo. Right, right. Right, So that's what I just realized and kind of but I guess you know when people are shopping they do expect a nice photo so well on our site currently I took those photos and you know they they granted it serves its purpose but at some point in time you know as any business knows and grows and scales and everything's got to reflect the brand that you're going for. So it was definitely a cost we were more than happy to pay. Yeah. And you're talking about the store on your, the pictures on your Shopify store now you took yourself or? Right. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Cause I guess, you know, if you're Photoshop savvy, you could take it and then just delete the <laughs> go real ghetto and delete all the pixels <laughs> in the back and <laughs> layer them together. <laughs> yeah. When you got these watches made in China, how do you get them over to the U S? Right. This is another funny one because it's like you always just want to get my stuff from here to there. Like you don't want to even think about it. But at some point you got to realize. Yeah. Well, like you can't just, it can't just teleport right. itself like in Star Trek, right? So Right. So, I mean, that was a huge learning, very steep learning curve for us. We played with sea freight, air freight, sea freight in the boxes, air freight in the watches, sea freight and everything, air freight and everything. I mean, literally every different combination possible. We factored in the fact that we decided to go with the fulfillment center. So, and then of course, customs. We are, uh, we're air freighting everything. Um, Grant, that's because we need to deliver our product as soon as possible. You're talking about air freighting with the watches in the box together as one piece or like separate the boxes of the boxes? Everything packaged together, yes, and skew. We'll skew it all at the supplier or they'll do it for us, I guess. Um, package it, skew it, put it in a carton. Um, also, another important part of thing about logistics to remember is is to look into how big you want to make your cartons. You don't want to make them too big. You know, for us, we have 36 watches and boxes in a, in a carton. This can also factor into if you go a wholesale route, how many do you typically sell in a wholesale order? So what does that mean if you go into more, can you go into more detail? Right, yeah. So for example, if, if your wholesale, typical wholesale order, you're going to want to sell 50 watches or I mean 50 uh, widgets you probably want to package in sets of 50. So then you can literally pull it from your fulfillment center or your own warehouse and ship it directly. You don't have to play around with pulling one or two out. Um, Also, if you do use a fulfillment center, they can charge you um, to go in and pull those out. So it's just easier to just send a box over that's a quantity that that makes sense. And And that varies. You know, if you're doing a product that, you know, has standard, a standard quantity, then it'd make a little more sense. So this in some ways goes into your size of your packaging too, like your bamboo box, how big do you want it? So it all fits kind of in one box, right? Exactly. And that's one thing that we will refine and adjust throughout, you know, this year is, 
you know, actually condensing it. We love our packaging. It's uh, a huge part of our brand, but actually making it a little more weight friendly. Uh, right now it's actually a little bit heavier than we'd like. Nice. Cause I think when you first started, you're like, yeah, I'm just going to make this box. And then yeah. you don't think down the road. That. That's all you think. <laughs> I want this box. It looks really cool. Yeah. Now I, I even didn't even think about this until you just brought this up. So, I mean, you compare this to like the internet marketing world where you just sell like PDFs, it's like instant. And then even like the d- delivery end of this stuff is like is mind boggling sometimes too. Oh, it's it, logistics. Honestly, was um, was a headache, but we we got through it. So well, we're almost there. Yeah, so I want to go back into a little bit about air freight versus sea freight. So, what made you um, not go with sea freight? Because I know it takes a long time. But were there any other factors besides that? No. It well, cost cost got factored in there. Um, it was definitely length of delivery more than anything, I'd say, because we do need to get these products delivered as soon as possible. We're actually a little behind schedule, um, to be honest, but that was partially due to how many we sold. Um, so good problems. Um, other than that, uh, it really wasn't too much in terms of cost. It, it was definitely would have saved us a few thousand dollars, but like I said, it was more important for us to get a pro- our product there um, in a timely fashion. Nice. And I, I guess you guys had extra money from the Kickstarter to make this work also. Right. right. So, so right. And if you went right. sea freight, how long would it have taken to get to the U.S.? It's actually not too much longer. It, it's, it is um, between 15 and 22 days, probably closer to 20, uh, to the L.A. port there in, uh, in Long Beach. It's about 25 days to the New York port, uh, between 25 and 30. How, how did they get to New York? And they go through like Panama Canal and then up Panama Canal. Yep. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had no idea before this how the hell they got anything anyway. Yeah, because you think stuff just pops up in Walmart or wherever you buy it. Right? right. So, so what happens if you're sea freighting it, you know, and you're not there at the port to get it? Like, what happens there? Is there someone to like sign off for it? Or if you're air freighting, it's a little easier. Um, Things pass through customs a lot. And it's funny, customs is a little bit of a gray area. If you do sea freight, you're going to need a certified, um, basically a customs agent, which you can hire out through your shipping logistics company from the supplier country. You can hire that out as one service. And I would recommend doing that and not you know, having one logistics company ship it, one agency sign for it, another freight forwarding company send it. I would say have it all done in one, even if it's going to cost you a little bit extra, which it won't be much. It will cost you a little more, but have it all done in one one uh, go. Nice. And how, what's the kind of extra service fee for this? Do you have a ballpark idea? I don't because um, I didn't see freight. I'm trying to think. Um, obviously, you have your general customs uh, you know, tax based on the product, You know, based on the HS codes and all of that, um, depending on the product that is being shipped in. If you're shipping in watches, um, you know, we're less than 10% um, on the cost of the good. Um, or whatever you value at. Oh, so this is like a U.S. code they have, or right? You know the the HS codes. Every every there's a universal set of codes that is used for the entire world. Then of then the United States has their own, and it's just taxed. Um, it's the system used in, in place to tax products as they come into the country. No, it's like say if I'm making like. Like bicycles, there's, there might be like a 10% customs tax, but then for like a computer, it might be five or? Right, right. And it's all going to vary depending upon the, the product coming in. And, you know, agricultural products are typically going to be on the higher end. Mm-hmm. And does this depend on the quality, quantity you import? Like No, that, or? that won't. As far as my, as my, my understanding goes, it, it, it doesn't. It's just, it's a straight tax on the product. When you guys air freight it, do you guys have to pay that too or? Yes. 
Yes. And it's quantities, you know, so if, you know, if you're shipping over a couple hundred watches, it may or may not get taxed. It's kind of, that's what I mean about gray area. Oh, so if you're sending like one to a friend, it might just, it, it won't be. It won't. We've shipped, we ship plenty of samples over here and nothing gets taxed. I see, I see. So, so I guess it's a gray of if they decide to keep it at customs to open it up and to see like, hey. That's how people got away with selling coach in Louis Vuitton purses for all those years back in the 90s and early 2000s and making a killing. <laughs> They'd send them over one at a time. And sell them on eBay and uh, or wherever, not pay any tax on it, and no one knew. Nice, and, and then I guess someone found out eventually. Eventually, I think it still goes on, but they're cracking down. Yeah, because I guess one unit is hard to track out of like how many pieces of mail go in the U.S. per day. And- you know, but they see uh, a full half a container or half a plane coming coming off with all that have a big old OG logo on the side. Might. They might have a question or two. Yeah, because you know the people always try to push the limit of like how much they can ship without getting customs, right? I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, everybody's trying to save money, and I, the government knows that. But um, you know, at some point, obviously, they want they're going to collect. Yeah, awesome, awesome, right? And so let's just wrap up a little bit into kind of some mindset uh, issues. So, uh, kind of, what's one thing you wish you knew starting out? Uh, that I was not going to sleep. <laughs> I'd say, you know, seriously, um, you know, I knew how much time that it takes, but there's a lot of customer service. I, I'll just answer this in terms of Kickstarter, I guess. There's a lot of customer service involved, um, and I'm a huge fan of doing that myself in the in the early going because, you know, if you get one person to care about your product, that's, you know, one more person than you had yesterday. And if you can, you know, show them that you care, that's, you know, really what your brand should be based on, in my opinion. So I'd say, you know, I didn't really know that I was going to be devoting so much time to customer service. And you got, and you have two partners working with you on this too, right? Right. I guess all of us. It's been a team nice, effort. Nice. So no sleep with, among all three of you guys, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. And so what is probably the biggest business lesson you've learned so far? Again, that kind of gets back to, you know, I take like taking this page out of Gary Vee's book, um, for all you know, the, the know him. That's just... Honestly, care and really just devoting yourself to not only pro- providing a quality product, um, taking the time to make sure that all those those quality control, if you're doing a physical pro- uh, physical product, all of that's in place, but also that all your customer service um, is in alignment and that you're handling those things on a day-to-day basis. That's kind of the biggest lesson that I've learned or at least the biggest skill that I've learned. Yeah, and it's one thing I realized is that like nowadays, you can't really just start a business and be driven by profit because that's not enough to kind of push you the hard times and to keep you going. Not in an information age, yeah, where things travel so fast. I mean, yeah, it, it, and we're still not in the clear by any means. And that's why I, you know, I, I continue to live day in and day out by kind of that, that motto of just really taking the care um, because, you know, as soon as you, you go get to this point or even beyond, you know, things travel so fast, it can just collapse as soon as it as fast as it got got to where it is yeah awesome right and so the future of original grain i see you guys have uh i think four or five watch models now i mean what's beyond that uh, kind of in the horizon right i mean as soon like i said first and foremost is get these products delivered get them get these sitting pretty on all of our backers wrists and customers through our website uh, as soon as that happens, make a push into try and get into some retail shops we actually have a a couple meetings lined up this summer I won't, I won't say any names yet, but uh, trying to get those lined up, but, but definitely expanding horizontally, maybe getting into some, some other unique products and then expanding upon our line. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds great because you have the whole kind of supply chain under kind of you know what's going on that you can go to wholesale and actually work things out 
there are two whereas kind of if you're just kind of being a middleman and then going wholesale it's like uh oh, you, you get squeezed on both ends right so right right yeah. awesome all right and so just to wrap things up uh, where can we find you online yeah uh, our website uh, originalgrain.com you can also go to our facebook uh, facebook slash original grain and, and at original grain on twitter awesome all right thanks so much ryan hey i appreciate it ter- uh, terry To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.